Hey, everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. We're back from a week off. Yeah, I'll call it that. <laughs> well, it wasn't. We punished ourselves. It's not like we took a week vacation. No, it was flu week. Yeah, it was flu, flu week. week. Um, I'm Courtney, by the way. And I'm Patrick. And yeah, we took last week off because a, a child brought home a bug that just knocked us off of our freaking feet. Like I've never been knocked off of my feet before. Still coughing from it. Can't yeah. Get rid of it. Yeah. Definitely still kind of, you know, coughing, but I feel human now. So that's a good thing. I'll take it. I don't. I know you don't. You've, you've had a rough day, but, um, we're here and we're going to have fun. <laughs> And also, I'm sorry, Pat, you were sick on your birthday, but it was Pat's birthday. It was. It was fun. It's, it's not fair. So for your birthday, you got the flu. <laughs> I did. It was great. Wonderful times. It freaking figures, man. That's how it works. That's how it's it always normal. works. Oh my God. It is whatever. Um, we have a Patreon. We do. We do have Patreon. It is up. Links will be on all the socials. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we're recording this, I don't exactly know how to how to phrase it i'm not super familiar with patreon yet but we we will come up with a plan and let you know what content we're putting out there so if you're interested in getting extra us (gasps) bless you yep then if you want some extra courtney and pat and evil pudding then feel free to head on over to patreon and um check it out it'll be the links on instagram and and, uh like i said twitter and all those things the tweeter the tweeter Okay. Any other business that you think we need to cover? Not really. Okay. You ready for this? Sure. In celebration of coming back, we have a um, a mass murder. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I was looking forward to. But uh, this is actually a highly, <laughs> a highly requested case that we're doing today. Like it was requested numerous times. Okay. And I put it off because I'm familiar with him. Okay. But um, let's just jump right into it. Okay, so today we're in Chicago. Yep, talking about a mass murderer. It's uh, not the St. Valentine's Day massacre. In fact, the casualties suffered at the hands of Al Capone in 1929 would pale in comparison to the tragedy we're covering today. Mm -hmm. July 13th, 1966, Richard Speck slithered his way into a Chicago townhouse that served as a dormitory for student nurses. So you are familiar with him, huh, Pat, a little bit? On this night... Big time douchebag. Yeah. On this night, Richard would kill eight young women, leading them one by one, like as Richard would later say, quote, lambs to the slaughter, end quote. The details of this horrific crime scene are going to be... Super heavy. I think that goes without saying. Um, I'll be sure to give you a heads up before we get into, you know, describing what went down that night. However, the reason I am going to be able to share with you exactly how that night played out at all in such striking detail is not because Richard was plagued with guilt and confessed to clear his conscience. Of course not. Um, You're going to be sorely disappointed if you're expecting an expression of remorse from him. That's not going to happen. But rather, it's because there was someone at the crime scene that July night who witnessed the horror he inflicted firsthand, a survivor. 
a young woman who would have been Speck's ninth victim, but instead she would play a key role in making sure this vile, murderous man would never kill again by identifying him right down to the memorable tattoo etched into his forearm that read, Born to Raise Hell. Such a badass. Such a badass. Billy badass. Fucking Billy fucking badass. And raise hell he did. So today, my friends, we are taking a deep look into what shaped notorious mass murderer Richard Speck and the events that transpired in his life leading up to that bloody night. You ready? Sure. Okay. So literally hours before the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 6, 1941, Richard Benjamin Speck entered the world. Is that an omen? That's not an omen at all, right? <laughs> Richard was the seventh of eight children, born to eight children. I'll say that slower. Did you fucking have anything else to do back then? Yeah. So he was the seventh of uh, eight children, born to Benjamin and Mary Speck, a very religious middle class couple. Benjamin worked as a uh, warehouse packer at the Western Stoneware Company in Monmouth. Illinois, where the family lived. And Mary stayed at home as a housewife, from what I gathered. I couldn't find that she worked anywhere. Couldn't find much about her earlier years. I believe that baby Richard was somewhat of a surprise for the couple because all of his uh, brothers and sisters were quite a bit older than him and kind of busy with their own lives. Like a lot of them had moved out, you know? Because of this, Richard lived almost like an only child up until his little sister Carolyn was born. So in total, Benjamin and Mary Speck had nine freaking kids. That's a lot of freaking kids. <laughs> My man had no pullout game. I, I guess not. Zero, zero pullout game. Like, do not try that. <laughs> it does not always work. <laughs> this guy just didn't even try it. <clears throat> like I said before, Richard's parents. <coughs> you good? That I'm might happen good. a few times. It's going to happen a lot because I'm in trouble. On both of us. On both of our um, fronts, it's going to happen. Like I said before, Richard's parents were very religious, especially his mother. In fact, she was teetotal and very against drinking, which you'll later see is a little ironic considering what the future holds for her. But we'll get there. I don't want to spoil all the fun for you. Oh, please don't. <laughs> so Benjamin, Richard's father, was also a very religious man. Ma- man. He was man. Man. He must, must have been multiple men. Multiple men. He was a very religious man. However, he just wasn't as vocal and in your face about it as as uh, Richard's mom was. I wouldn't say that Richard's early relationship with his parents was bad per se, at least not with his father. See, Mary was, his mom was really smothering towards Richard. She was such a dominating woman and she would remain a very commanding figure in his life as we're going to see. This in turn led Richard to really cling to his father, who he looked up to. Richard and Benjamin were super close, and they were a lot alike in personality, so there was kind of an unspoken bond there between the two of them. I think they were both quiet, and it, they were able to just sit and be with each other. You they know, and bonded over their crazy as his crazy as mom, probably. But they were able. Why is to this woman obsessed with me? She's just sit in, in silence and exist with each other. You know, they they were close. Yeah, but it, yeah. it's one of those things where they were probably just 
able to sit in silence, like you said, yeah. so they could enjoy peace and quiet because it sounds like mom didn't give a whole lot of peace and quiet. No, she didn't. So they could just sit with each other and be like, oh, <laughs> quiet. <laughs> and fish and stuff. Like, I, I, I mean, I, you, I guess. You're quiet when you fish. You don't talk. You shut up. You're going to scare the fish. Yeah, I know. I don't know that. I'm just, maybe it's a day quill talking. Sorry. So apparently this bond that Richard and his father shared kind of upset Mary a little bit. I'm sure it was jealousy to some degree since Richard was her youngest boy and the nest was quickly emptying since all of Richard's brothers and sisters were grown. It's never an easy thing for a parent to go through. So she I wanted long for the day. <laughs> I don't I can't I even long imagine for the day. Not me, I'm scared. I have anxiety about these damn kids leaving. Oh no, we're having a fucking party when they go. <laughs> So she wanted to keep Richard a baby for as long as possible, I think, is what was going on. She babied him. Richard had a fairly, well, not a fairly charmed life. He had a charm life up until he started school. Up until then, he had been so coddled. And this would be the first time he really encountered any adversity at all, you know, any friction in his life. See, the teacher noticed that Richard was struggling to read. And after talking with him, she realized that it was because the boy really needed glasses. So she contacted contacted his parents who got him glasses. However, Richard absolutely, remember, he's super shy. He just refused to wear his glasses. As we know, kids are little assholes. And when Richard wore his glasses, he would get bullied. Which, I don't understand why kids bully kids with glasses. I don't get, it's like, well, I can see now, bitch. Are you jealous? Pretty much. I don't know. It's just they're different, so they bully them. It's so stupid. But, you know, part of me, like, you know, obviously the kid didn't do anything wrong at that point, so you feel bad for him. Yeah. At the same time, I'm like, fuck that kid. Well, we know we know what he ends up, yeah, Yeah. being. So it's like, you feel bad for him being bullied, but at the same time, you're like, do you know? Kind of deserves it. And do you think we know this because he told somebody, like, he told somebody the reason he oh, had a, sure. a mental break was, the all kids these, were horrible to me. Why? Because I have glasses. <laughs> fucking asshats are always like, oh, it's because when I was in sixth grade, the kids were mean to me and knew me took. No, it's because you're a fucking psychopath. Listen, you little dickhead. I had a retainer that went across my whole freaking face and I didn't whole grow face. up to kill anybody. Right around the back of my head and shit. Okay? <laughs> Calm the fuck down, Mr. Glasses. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> So um, I think most of us went through this as children, and lo and behold, we didn't grow up to be mass murderers. However, for Richard, he hated being the center of attention in any way. Whether it was positive or negative, he was just painfully unsure of himself and withdrawn. So I think that it was probably pretty traumatic for him, you know, to be the brunt of jokes. Again, feel sorry for the kid, not the adult. This situation was made 10 times worse when that same school teacher made Richard get up and speak in front of class. That further traumatized him, and he got to the point that he blamed her, the school teacher, not only for ratting him out for needing glasses, but also for humiliating him and forcing him to stand up and speak in front of the class. So he was like, he hated her. Which every fucking kid, for us, at least our age or younger or older growing up, like, Everybody had to stand up and speak in front of the class, and you sucked at it. You just dealt with it because it's. Just, you just you just got through it, man. You just did it. And I, I mean, yeah, it sucks, and we can probably remember it because it was traumatizing to a degree. But 
I don't know. It's not that big of a deal. You, you just you just move on. So we will see that this is only the first of many women that Richard would learn to place blame for all of his troubles on. It's kind of his thing. You know, he likes not his to. Fault. It can't be his fault. <laughs> no, it can't be his fault. Coco, what in the bloody hell are you doing? She's digging a hole. She loves to dig before she lays down. <laughs> but you laid in the same spot you stood up from. Okay. Do your thing. It, it takes, it Do takes, it's a, it's a journey to get comfortable, dad. Literally was in the same spot, stood up, yeah. dug around and then we relayed right back down. I, I feel you, Coco. It's fine. Now, although his issues in school were traumatizing for a kid, I'm sure he could have eventually worked through them. <laughs> However, Richard's little world would be turned upside down when he arrived home from school one day to find that his father had suddenly passed away. That sucks. Yeah. Benjamin Speck had suffered a massive heart attack while at work in the warehouse, and he had been rushed to the hospital. However, doctors wouldn't be able to restart his heart. That's That's sad. That's really sad. Richard was only six. So for the next three years... Richard just withdrew deeper into himself. He he wasn't able to recover. He couldn't cope. And it really upset him that his mom and his siblings were seemingly able to pull themselves together and try to move on with their lives. Yeah, like, how are you not so fucked yeah, up from this? Yeah, like, How does this not bother you? Like, it bothers me. In Richard's young mind, he felt that that was a b- betrayal, you know, and, and, that, and that's really sad. With all of his pain and anguish over the loss of his father, Richard's performance at school began to suffer even more. He for sure wasn't able to form any social relationships, and he started to garner a reputation for being a like a problem child altogether. When he was nine years old, Richard's mother met um, a charming, fast-talking, traveling salesman from Texas named uh, Carl Lindbergh. And the two began a whirlwind relationship. And all of Mary's older children and even little Carolyn, uh, Richard's younger sister, seemed to really get along with Carl. However, Richard was not a fan at all. And the feeling was very mutual for Carl. (laughs) Carl didn't like him either. I think Richard not only resented that Carl was trying to take his father's place, but also I think he saw right through some of Carl's BS from the start because Carl was a salesman. Yeah. And he acted like he was a sleazy, a sleazy type. He's a sales puke. In May of 1950, the whole family and Carl took a train ride to Palo Pinto, Texas. What the fuck is that? I don't know where that was. It's crazy. I've never heard of it. From the train station, they went straight to the courthouse, and Mary and Carl were married. They didn't tell the kids where they were going. Just surprise. Went to, yeah, surprise, got married. At the ceremony, this is even worse, Carl signed paperwork adopting all of Mary's children. And you can imagine how much Richard freaking hated this. And what's even worse is the family was relocating to Texas, to a town about 60 miles from Fort Worth called Santo, where Richard would start school there as Richard Lindbergh. So his name changed because he's adopted. He's no longer Richard Speck. So this poor kid's whole world was uprooted, and he's missing his dad. They're having to sell his house where his dad was, and they're even getting rid of his dad's name that he's carrying. I mean, it's a lot for a nine-year-old. That's definitely a lot. Unfortunately, it would just be 
downhill from this point on in Richard's life. See, now that Carl had married Mary, he no longer had to pile on the fake charm. He began to drink heavily, so heavily that the family's home was filthy and littered with whiskey bottles. Nice. It also came to light that Carl was not the knight in shining armor that he had appeared to be. No. Aside from being an alcoholic and an angry one at that, he also had a 25-year criminal record that include, included forgery charges as well as numerous drunk driving charges. And Carl seemed to really focus all of his drunken anger on one person. The one he didn't like, yeah. His stepson, Richard. Although Carl was not always physically abusive to Richard, he cut him deep with snide, really just cruel comments. Carl picked on Richard for not being able to speak when spoken to and for his tall and lanky stature. He was just a dick to him, you know? Then one day when Richard was 10, Carl made a cutting remark about the kid's dead father. And this obviously, like, incensed Richard. Richard's like, this is crossing a freaking line here. So they, the two guys were in the garage, Richard and Carl, and Richard grabbed a hammer from a toolbox and swung it at Carl's head. He missed, and Carl grabbed the hammer from Richard and hit Richard in the head with it. Richard dropped to the ground, unconscious and frothing at the mouth. For a second, Carl actually thought that he killed his 10-year-old stepson. So... While Richard was unconscious, Carl was slapping Richard in the face, and the poor kid turned his head to the side and began vomiting. Carl had just inflicted brain trauma, literal brain trauma, on his stepson that would haunt Richard for the remainder of his life. Nice. And for whatever reason, uh, Richard never told anyone about this incident. When his mother would ask him about the massive bruise and like cuts that were on his face— Richard claimed to have fallen from a tire swing and hit his head on a tree root. Mm. And everyone was like, oh, okay, and then just moved on. Cool. I don't know. I, if I had to guess, I don't know this is fact, but Carl probably threatened him if I had to guess. Don't tell anyone or I'll kill you. So over the next few years, Richard's home life became more and more unstable. Effectively, Carl would move his family from one low-income housing situation to another because he was drinking away all the money he earned. And mm-hmm. he didn't make bad money. He actually made fairly good no, money. He just drank it away. He just drank it away. So the family finally would settle after moving 12 times in like Shit. three years. Finally settled into a really seedy part of Dallas, Texas in uh, 1952. Never been a fan of Dallas. Oh, because of a team or something? Not a fan of the city, and I fucking hate the Cowboys, so. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> it's, it's, pers- not, it's personal. It's just also one of the cities that I've been to numerous, numerous times, and it's just never one of those cities that I'm like, I can't wait to come back to this city. It's just like. I liked Frisco, that little town yeah, right outside of it. Frisco's not like, I mean, yeah, it's Dallas, but it's like the suburbs. Yeah. It's, it's a cool little town because it has, you know, the star, and it has uh, the baseball stadium and all that stuff, but. Also has Debbie Does Dallas. <laughs> what? <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> 90s porn. I always heard about that in the 90s. I never saw it, obviously. But. I think it's from like the 70s. Is it really? Yeah. Debbie Does Dallas? <laughs> if they made a porn about it, it can't be too bad. <laughs> about a lady doing the entire city? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. 
I mean, go girl, whatever. Okay, so. <laughs> We're not slut shaming here. This got really awkward. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know really why that quickly. came to my mind. Okay, so anyways, back on track, Courtney. So the family finally settled in a really seedy part of Dallas, 1952. Richard's early life seemed to just be kind of plagued by one tragedy after another. And that really prevented him from learning, uh, gaining coping skills, I think. Like, he never I mean, got the chance to just... I kind of think a hammer to the head at 10 probably that, that pro- Well, we'll get there. But yeah, absolutely. That, that did it too. And we're about to see another tragedy. That remained the case when Richard was informed that his oldest brother, Robert, was killed. Robert had been driving to work on his motorcycle when he was hit head-on by a drunk driver. And I think for Richard, this devastated him. It's like having his father die all over again, you know? Yep. So he's 12 at this point. And at one point, he went, like we talked about before, he was a shy, very quiet, reserved. He was a good, good kid. That's That's out the window now. Just get over that. So this tragedy coupled with a new lack of impulse control and the onset of debilitating headaches thanks to his head injury really drove Richard to start kind of sampling the leftover whiskey bottles and half-burned cigarette butts that his stepdad would leave around the house. What he was doing was he was trying to drink to numb his emotional and his physical pain. Mm -hmm. And when he didn't have access to that anymore, he would go out in the rougher parts of Dallas and consume all the alcohol and every single drug he could get his hands on. And mind you, he was only 12 at this time. Then in 1955, at the age of 13, he was arrested for the very first time for trespassing. Basically, he was caught sleeping off a bad trip, a bad LSD trip in an abandoned construction site. This may have been... His first arrest, but as you're going to see, it's going to be far from his last. Because in the following years, he would be arrested for literally every single misdemeanor that you can think of. And I saw, I was looking at it as a list, and I was going to list it, and I would just waste like an hour of the podcast time. It was, and I mean, from like 13 (laughs) on, it was insane. Richard finally dropped out of school at the age of 16 after giving high school a a try. I I was going to say a solid try, but I don't think he did. Give it a whirl. (laughs) As you can probably imagine, it just wasn't his cup of tea. He failed every single high school class that he took, and rather than try to repeat his freshman year, he just gave up. Peace out. I'll go work. Aside from not giving a solid shit about school, he was painfully awkward around women and found the maturing young girls to be very threatening. Very threatening. It also didn't help. Oh, sorry. I bumped my mic. It also didn't help that he had developed really painful cystic acne that would eventually leave his face permanently scarred. And high school's just a shitty time for all of us, but Richard was just, I don't think ever given the tools to even begin to handle it. Nope. So for the next three years, Richard remained technically living with his mom, stepfather, and younger sister, Carolyn, but he spent most of his nights on the streets out looking for the next fix. No doubt, he was very well known to the local police. Oh, sure. He's got a, he's done, you said he fucking got arrested for every misdemeanor there is. They're oh, like, yeah. Oh, there goes Dick again. They, exactly. They know him. It was during this time on the streets. There goes Dick's back. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's awful. I'm good, at this. <laughs> I'm good at this job. When they were teasing him for his glasses, they probably said something like "spec has spec spectacles. Dick spectacle. <laughs> Dick spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> nice spectacle spec. <laughs> Anyways, it was, was during. <laughs> you could come up with too. I'm like, oh my lord, you are not a good bully. I'm not a good bully. I'd make a horrible bully. <laughs> I'd make a fantastic bully. I know you would, and I'd make a bad one. <laughs> I mean, ask the kids. I already do make a fantastic bully. They'll tell you that. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Made up, maggots. I'm going to find out. So it was during his time on the streets of Dallas, probably in a drunken stupor, that teenage Richard found someone to tattoo the whole length of his forearm with the words, Born to Raise Hell. And since Richard was effectively on a trajectory of self-destruction, I'd say this was definitely his life's motto for sure. For sure. So fitting. One day, Richard made his way home to find that Carl, his stepfather, had left his mother for another woman and had moved to California. Okay. They knew this because Carl sent a postcard telling them so. Like, hey, y'all. Hey, I left y'all. I'm in California. Got a new wife. Fuck y'all. I'm out. It's not funny. It's really not, but it's just like. No, it's not. But knowing what this dude turns into, it's hard not I to know. make light of it or be like, you deserve this shit. Oh, God. So with Carl gone, Richard saw an opportunity. I will give him this. He saw a brief opportunity to step up and be the man of the house and take care of his mom. So apparently the day that. Uh, Richard's mom received that postcard from her husband. Richard went and got himself a job at the 7-Up Bottling Factory in Dallas. So for a time, Richard was actually shouldering the financial responsibilities and supporting his mom and little sister Carolyn, even giving up drinking for a bit to save money. However, don't get too excited. That didn't last. He's not making big changes. As we will see, Richard had some... Major issues with women, especially, especially when he starts drinking, which he soon started doing again because of his crippling headaches. He, yeah, I mean, he couldn't get him to calm down. Now that uh, her husband was all gone, all of Richard's mother's attention was focused in on her son. And with all of this one-on-one time, she undoubtedly would get on his nerves. It's very natural since she was quite the overbearing figure in yep. his life. Well, to combat his mother's overbearing nature, Richard would just, <laughs> this isn't funny either, but I'm laughing because I'm uncomfortable and I can't believe this. Richard would just beat her. He started beating his mom. Oh. Yeah. That's insane to me. He started to beat his mom whenever he felt that she was out of line or overstepping. And I think it was kind of, I, probably, he was probably mirroring the behavior that he saw from his stepdad. I was going to say, it's probably learned behavior. At one time, he even shattered her cheekbone and the cops were called, but charges were never filed against him. Well, she's never pressed charges. She yeah, never pressed charges him. against him. Now, remember I mentioned that Carolyn, Richard's little sister, also lived in the house as well. And as far as I know, Richard didn't abuse her. However, he would later reveal that as a teenager, he lusted after Carolyn, his sister. Ew. But he never acted on it, thank God. So, I guess. Still fucking who? Yeah. So, it was a welcome thing for Richard when Carolyn got married. This was kind of, this in his mind, this kind of took her off the market. He 
said. She was always off the market, Mr. Alabama. Because he's your sister. <laughs> well, after Carolyn married, she and her new husband remained in the house. Ooh. And, yeah, and her husband worked. So it's a crowded, little awkward situation. But Richard, I think, was glad he didn't have to shoulder all the financial responsibilities on his own any longer. So this gave Richard a lot more free time to go out and raise hell, so to speak. I mean, he was born to, so. <laughs> One night, in fact, Richard found himself having a grand old time at the Texas State Fair. Eating funnel cakes. Who the fuck wouldn't? The Texas State Fair is the shit. Riding rides, popping balloons with the dart thingies. Whatever else you do at the fair. I don't know what else you do at the fair, but especially in the 50s. Big ass carnival, like carnival games. Yeah, you pop the balloons with the dart thingies. Yes, baby. Pop the balloons with the dart thingies. But Richard would leave the fair with more than just a stuffed animal. He found himself a wife. There. They sell those at the fair? They don't. Oh. But it was at the Texas State Fair that Richard would first meet his soon-to-be wife. He found someone who actually found him to be a decent human being yeah, he for met, long enough. He met someone at the fair. He didn't find a whole-ass wife at the fair. Well, he kind of did. Well. Okay, so it's not the 50s. I lied. It's 1961, so early 60s. And he goes to the fair with his family. Now, mind you, Richard is 20 at this point. And he's never had a girlfriend or been with a woman intimately. If you catch my drift. Yeah, I, yeah you don't have to like give me weird looks. I, I completely understand <laughs> what you're saying there. I'm <laughs> he's never seen a boob. Good for him. Got it. Oh my God. <laughs> he probably has seen a boob. Yeah, and actually, he probably saw I'm not. I'm going to go down there with a rabbit hole. Oh my God. So he's super awkward and immature, I think, for his age, when it, especially when it comes to girls. Well, Richard spots this beautiful 15-year-old girl what the? named Shirley Malone. She was there at the fair with her parents. Anyways, his mom, Richard's mom, and Shirley's parents both were, like, actively encouraging them to start talking and, like, dating. <coughs> you okay? <coughs> yeah, but I'm not going to encourage my 20-year-old son to go talk to a 15-year-old. I don't. Maybe the times were different. I don't know. It's times just, were very different, but. But the two eventually became inseparable. I think that Richard's maturity was stunted, so I guess you could say it makes sense, but it's still gross and wrong. I know, but if he's if he's emotionally stunted and she's only fifteen, they're probably on the same freaking but ew mental today abilities. Straight to jail. <laughs> Straight to jail. Do not pass. Go. Do not collect two hundred dollars in pederast. <laughs> pederast. Pedophile. What's a pederast? Nickname for a pedophile? I've never heard that. You're sheltered. I'm not sheltered. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. What Richard liked <laughs> most about Shirley was her innocence. That's a direct quote. She was young and pure, just like how he pictured a woman should be. And we're, by the way, we're going to circle back to this way of thinking later on. But just know that. There's definitely some psychology to unpack here, without a doubt, that's very important down the road. And we're going to cross back over to that. So okay. hang on to that. Okay, so the two are dating, mostly under the watchful eye of Shirley's parents, so they have chaperones. But one night, Richard is able to take Shirley out alone. Then 
After a night on the town, he takes her to an abandoned house, and the two have sexual relations. Mm. Both for the first time ever. Both Mm -hmm. of them. Just three weeks after the pair met, Shirley informs Richard that she is, in fact, pregnant with his child. And back in those days, like, you just got married (laughs) before she started to show. That's what you do, especially in Texas. Oh, yeah. Um, So that's exactly what they did. They got married. Richard also talked the top blah, blah, blah. Richard also took this opportunity to change his name from Lindbergh back to Speck at their wedding ceremony. So well, okay. works out for him. He had long wanted to get rid of his stepfather's name, so I guess that's a good thing for him. So Mr. and Mrs. Speck, they moved in with Richard's mom. So in his mom's house, his sister Carolyn and her husband are living. And then Richard and his new wife are living there. It's definitely a crowded situation. I mean, I don't think it's that crowded for them if they grew up with nine brothers and sisters. Or eight brothers yeah, but they sisters. had all moved out of the house by the oh, time that, yeah. So Richard actually, for like maybe half an hour, had every intention of becoming a provider for his growing family. However, something inside of him had greatly changed since their marriage. Whereas once he viewed his wife, Shirley, as the picture of purity and innocence, with her now not a virgin and pregnant, she was in his mind just like every other, quote, whore woman out there. And she was, like, tarnished, you know? She was now good for one thing and one thing only, and that was for sex. Unfortunately, Richard started to find that he didn't have a taste for lovemaking in the traditional sense. He unfortunately only wanted to take his wife by force or against her will. So effectively, he started raping his pregnant wife and beating her. He's he's a tool. He's a tool. I never said he was a good guy. He's a bad guy. He was a piece of shit. This obviously, I mean, duh, caused Shirley to pull away from Richard emotionally. No. <laughs> Plus, remember, the poor kid's only 15 and pregnant. Yeah, yeah. So with things not so good on the home front... What does Richard do? He's very predictable. Richard went back to drinking, but in bars now. And by now, we've learned that when he drinks, he usually gets into trouble. In fact, just days before the birth of Richard's baby, a little girl named Robbie Lynn, Richard was arrested for participating in a bar fight in McKinney, Texas. He spent 22 days in jail for disturbing the peace and missed the birth of his own daughter. What I'm happened, sure his wife was super upset about that. What happened next, I believe, is the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. You know how Ted Bundy's breakup started his whole downward spiral? That they all do. Well, this is the beginning of Richard's right here, right here. Well, we've seen it in a couple people we've covered. Yeah. So Richard got out of jail and he came home expecting a welcome home fucking party. Oh my God, I'm so happy. And he wanted to meet his new baby. Yeah. Your baby's been dying to meet you. Everybody's like, no, fuck. Only that's not what happened. (laughs) His wife had taken their baby and left. And what's even worse, his mom and his sister refused to tell Richard where they went. So this is, this is a betrayal not just by his wife, by every, by every female, but by wife. every female that he like like loves, you know. To include his sister. To include his sister, who he lusted after all those years. And but she's the other like she's the only other non-vile person. Like his, even his mommy beats up whatever. 
But his sister was the only other person that really he didn't resent. Yeah. So now he does. All this time, I don't know how he maintained this freaking job, but all this time he had been employed at the 7-Up plant still. They didn't wonder where he was for 22 days? It's crazy. I don't, maybe they just needed work and didn't care. I don't maybe know. he was, yeah, maybe he was on call or he would show up every day. Like lots, a lot of I think factory, he was a truck driver. Well, also a lot of factory jobs back then, if I'm not mistaken, like a lot of times people would just show up for work and they'd be like, hey, you, 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 and you, I need you today. And if they didn't show up, they weren't just like, oh, no, Richard's not here. He's supposed to be here five days a week. They were just like, well, he's not here. Especially if you're a truck driver, which I think he was. Well, in Richard's mind, in order to get his baby back, he needed he need money, right? So he went to his job to get his paycheck. But he also grabbed his co-worker's paycheck at the same time. Not an oopsie. It was very much on purpose. Oh, I didn't realize it. <laughs> he forged a signature on the stolen check, which, by the way, was $44. The check was $44. For $44. And he cashed him. And, of course, he was caught. Well, not two days later, when he went back into work, like, showed up for work, they were like, hey, man, you're laid off. Like, leave. So he was made to leave the plant, and on his way out, the police were waiting for him. Richard was arrested and this time sentenced to three years in the state penitentiary in Huntsville at the age of, yeah, at the age of 21. As we so often see in these stories of these horrific people, he was released on January 2nd, 1965, after serving just 16 months for good behavior. So, early release. When he returned home, Richard was met with divorce papers from Shirley. Oh, geez. Go figure. And he had also caught wind that, you know, she was living, her and his baby were living with another man. It probably wasn't in and out of jail. And she was set to remarry. Richard was furious at the world, mainly at women. So he, of course, went out, got drunk, and and attempted to abduct and stab a woman with a 17-inch knife on his way home from the car. It's a machete. The woman screamed, and it scared him off. So it seems like he wasn't too committed to the crime. He was kind of testing the waters of violent crime. Seventeen-inch knife is called a fucking machete. Well, also at well, my next point was also at how many inches is a knife considered a sword? Seventeen inches is no longer a knife. (laughs) No, it's 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 damn near a sword. You know, seventeen inches is probably tip of the blade to the base of the handle. So. It's probably most likely like a eight, nine inch knife. I mean, do you know what does just as much damage? Like a switchblade. It gets the job done. Or a sword. You could, well, it's easier to conceal. A 17 inch knife is hard. Where did he carry it? (laughs) Probably in his hand. Dumbass. Anyways, for this, he was thrown back into prison. I can't believe I just said that. No shit he carried it in his fucking hand. Like where else would the fucking I thought you it? were just being a dick to me. No, but. I was just absolutely dumber than a box of rocks on that one. So for this crime, for attempting to abduct a woman. He was 17 inch knife. He was thrown back in prison in Huntsville for 16 months. In fact, he was placed in the same cell he had just been released from. They hadn't even had time to reassign his bunk. That's how fast. Well, welcome he was back, back Richard. In, yeah, exactly. 
Huntsville was no joke back then either. Well, listen to this. It kind of was a joke because unfortunately there was a mix-up in the paperwork and this resulted in Richard being released after just a few months. The more I looked into it, I think what happened was, so they released him at the end of his original sentence and not his new sentence for the stabbing. Well, I mean, they're, yeah, they're going and there was a mix-up in paperwork. Yeah, I was about to say, and it's truly paperwork back then. It's not yeah. like... On computers. On computers. It's like a stack of paper. So if I have two pieces of paper that one says, his, here's his new sentence and here's his other one, I mix the two up. Very easy to do. Voila, his old sentence is what we finish out. We can give Richard a lot of credit. We can't give Richard a lot of credit for many things. But one thing we can say about him is he's predictable. We can, we can pretty much. They all are. We can pretty much tell you what he's going to do next. After Richard's release from prison, he fell right back into his heavy drinking. I mean, duh. He's not going to learn a lesson. This resulted in a barroom fight where Richard brandished a knife and stabbed a man. The fight had been over a girl. So this is the first violent, like, he actually stabbed somebody. Okay, get this. The fight had been over a girl, a girl who was a bartender that Richard had been actually kind of staying with and babysitting for, which, why someone would let Richard spec babysit their kid is just beyond me but, but it's back then and all you gotta do is have enough charming of a personality if you've never met the person before you don't know that they're a violent yeah and he's and quiet and, and he's, they're quiet and he's, if he's nice and civil it's like hey you're looking for a place i live upstairs can you babysit anyways richard apparently witnessed this bartender getting a little too friendly you know with another patron so he pulled out a knife and a fight ensued this time richard actually stabbed the man I think it would be safe to say that at this point, he's just unhinged. He's escalating, right? We always see the escalation. He's escalating, yeah, of course. But this is crazy. Okay, so this was a crime of passion. And the Dallas police, they're very familiar, very familiar with Richard. They actually had some sympathy for Richard and was like, this was a crime of passion. He's trying to get his life together, you know. He actually has a girlfriend. So... They actually dropped the aggravated assault charge. And they're like, okay, if you pay this $10 fine, we'll call it even. $10 fine for stabbing someone. That's a sweet deal. I was about to say, where does one get that deal? <laughs> but Richard, he's just... <coughs> but Richard, he's consumed with rage and betrayal and just refused to pay the $10. He's like, no. Fuck your $10. Fuck your $10. So in lieu of payment, the court sentenced him to only three days in local jail. Yeah. Three days for stabbing a man. Okay, Pat, you're going you're gonna to like this one. So this next part proves to me that Richard Speck maybe isn't a rocket scientist, in case you were wondering if he had a high IQ or not. Yeah, I never actually wondered that. He does not. Okay. okay. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> Out of jail and just not giving two flying shits about anything. No, not even that. Richard thought, hey, I need a car. I mean, he hasn't had a car yet. So he had just enough money saved up to buy a junker, which he did. Like this thing was a freaking rust bucket. Well, he used his shitty car to drive to a convenience store where he stole 70, 70 cartons of cigarettes. That's a lot. 
Make some money off that, though. You just got to remember, this dude's been in and out of prison, too. What's yeah, that's how they do. What's the currency in prison? Cigarettes. So this dumbass proceeded to sell those carton of cartons of cigarettes out of the back of a shitty car right outside of the convenience store that he stole them from. <laughs> <laughs> Not only, like, fuck you, I just stole from you, but fuck you, I stole from you, and I'm selling it in your parking lot. <laughs> Jeez. That's some, like, movie-level shit. Like, I think of Clerks or something like that when I think about it. <laughs> like, at least go next door, don't like, mess. Go down the street, bro. <laughs> it's going to come as no surprise to you that word got back to the cops. <laughs> An arrest warrant was issued for Richard on March 8th for doing this. So, he abandoned his car with all his signed paperwork in the glove box. Didn't bother taking that out. And he went to hide out for a few days, kind of on the outskirts of town. When he came back home to his mom and his sister, Carolyn, she was there. Carolyn was like, you know what? The cops are looking for you, dude. We got to get you out of here. So she put Richard on a bus headed to Chicago where their older sister, Martha, lived. So she kind of wanted to get him out of Dodge. And this was officially ending his time in Dallas. He's not going to come back to Dallas. Too much trouble. He's already got the law looking for him. You know, get you out of town. They're not looking for you anywhere else. So if you're if you're you're not going to be able to keep count because I didn't list how many arrests he had. But if he would have stayed in Dallas and been arrested for this last crime, mm-hmm. like the selling cigarettes out of the back of his rust tin, this would have been Speck's forty second arrest. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, that's, it's a lot. That's a lot, especially in Texas. <clears throat> Normally, they'd just be like, you go to prison. Yeah. For prison. Ever. Time. And all in the same state. That's insane to me. And Huntsville was like, hey, man, we, we still got your shit here if you want to use it. Like, <laughs> we never got rid of your, because we knew you'd be back, bro, so it was your bunk. Exactly. And Huntsville is like one of the most famous prisons in Texas. Yeah, it is. At his older sister's house, so he's at Martha's house now, he wasn't exactly welcomed. Martha and her husband, Gene, generally knew Richard's background. Like, they knew that he had been in trouble with the law here and there, but they didn't really know him and, like, how bad right, but I'm he sure was. they probably talked to their mom or family, and they're like, oh, Richard's back in jail again. Yeah. So, remember, Martha was a lot older than Richard, so it's not like they grew up together or close or anything No, yeah, like she's that. probably, like, 10 years older. Than- or, or more, yeah. yeah. Martha was a nurse. And Jean was in the Navy, and they had a teenage daughter. Oh, gosh. It didn't take long for Jean to hate his brother-in-law. He just didn't trust him, and he hated the way that Richard kind of checked out their teen daughter. So he just had generally bad vibes from Richard, which, accurate. (laughs) Good vibe meter guy, because he's crazy. After just a couple of days of staying with them, Jean was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. So he put Richard on a bus to Monmouth, Illinois, where Richard's older brother, another older brother, Howard, lived. And Howard actually owned his own joining company, which not too familiar with joining, but he owned a company that did it. Sort of familiar with it. Not going to speak on it because I'll say it wrong. So Richard <laughs> stayed with uh, Howard and worked for his brother and saved up a little nest egg. Things were going good for a while, but the only issue was Howard didn't want Richard to drink while living with him. 
So Richard announced that (laughs) he was going to be renting a room at a place called the Christie Hotel, which was within walking distance from all of the taverns, like in Monmouth. Perfect for Richard. It's just what he needs. Oh, yeah. Little bar town. Richard later would say that during this time, his rage against women was just building and building inside of him. Fun. Well, one evening, after a night of drinking, Richard broke into the Monmouth home of Mrs. Virgil Harris, a divorcee who was in her late 60s and worked as a babysitter to make ends meet. Just random. Very random. Mrs. Harris, well, I'm sure he had been drinking and just whatever. Mrs. Harris came home after a long evening of babysitting, only to be accosted by Richard Speck, who had been waiting for her return, like in her home, waiting for her. It's terrifying. Yeah. Mrs. Harris would later, yes, she did survive this encounter with Speck. Well, he wasn't murdering still then. No, he wasn't murdering yet. Mrs. Harris would later say that her assailant had a southern accent and, quote, impeccable manners, always referring to her as ma'am, which doesn't make much sense seeing as Richard tied up this poor woman to her kitchen table, tied her up, blindfolded her, raped her, then proceeded to rob her of what few worldly possessions she had, all the while apologizing and, like, calling her ma'am. It's weird. Yeah, it's very, very weird. It's a very weird duality. It doesn't make sense. She would then tell police police that before he left, he thanked her and told her to have a nice night. Police would... <coughs> yeah, yeah. <coughs> it's like he's finishing a date. Police would later say that Mrs. Harris appeared to be more baffled than frightened. Yeah, well, if your assailant's going to come at you and, like, you know... That whole situation you're being almost apologetic. It's weird. Raped, you know, tied up. But I mean, I would be terrified and traumatized. Yeah, but you would be. But I I do get what she's saying. She's confused. confused Yeah, if he was very polite and apologetic about it, it's like what just happened? Like you just did this, but you're being sweet about it and like checking on me and apologizing. What the fuck? So crazy. He does take a turn though. No. (laughs) Less than a week later, Richard was out drinking at one of his regular spots next to his hotel that he was living at, a place called Frank's Tavern. The tavern owner, probably Frank, I couldn't find his name, guessing it was Frank. I'm going to guess Frank. (laughs) Put out an ad that he wanted to contract someone to build a pig pen out in the back of the bar, which I think is soups weird, but what else? Yeah, because you would never build a pig pen anywhere. I would personally build a pig pen right in my bedroom because I fucking love pigs, but not in the middle of, like, downtown Illinois. We live in Houston. Have you ever been in Houston? There's, like, fucking horse farms in the middle of downtown. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. You made me lose my place. I'm good at that. So, Richard had made it known to the owner, let's call him Frank, that um, he was Steve, <laughs> Steve, the owner of Frankie's. <laughs> that he was a jo- hey, I'm a joiner, I'm a really good joiner. I don't know what a joiner is, but that's what Richard. I tried did. to look up joining company, and it, we know what it got. Mm-hmm. How to join a company? Really? That thanks, fucking great Google for the assistance. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Googs. 
give me articles on how to join a company or what to expect when joining a company. Okay. That's Richard, not what I was looking for. Richard was like, hey, by the way, I'm a joiner and I'd be able to construct the best damn pig pen this side of the Mississippi. And it worked and he was actually hired to construct the pig pen out back of Frank's Tavern. Okay. So he did. And surprisingly, he did a pretty good job. Like, it was definitely, I mean, it's a pig pen. And the pigs liked it. (laughs) I don't know what they're looking for, but I mean, it worked. The pigs were. Fenced in gated area for pigs. The pigs gave it 10 out of 10 on Yelp. But here is where we're going to see Richard transform from just a lying, thieving alcoholic to a shitbag. A really dark shitbag. Not Richard. So one night, he was drinking way too much at Frank's Tavern when a female bartender cracked a joke. It was a playful joke, but it was at Richard's expense. He was, like, butt hurt, And he stopped outside around the back of the tavern probably to, like, go look at his pig pen. And, and And, like, stew about, like, how much girls just fucking suck. Well, that female bartender, a woman named Mary Kay Pierce, she actually came outside after, you know, Richard did. She wanted to apologize to him and be like, hey, right, I, she was, probably just I was joking. I was fucking like, around. Hey, I yeah. didn't upset you. Like, I was just fucking joking. But she wanted to make sure his feelings weren't hurt. Well, lacking impulse and rage control, Richard decided that he was going to make a move on Mary Kay. And he wasn't going to take no for an answer. So he made a move on her, and when she resisted him, this literal animal, and I've never heard of this before, this animal punched Mary so hard in the gut that it instantly ruptured her liver. Like, the rage that must have been building inside of him is unbelievable. Well, she, of course, collapsed. I mean, she's effectively dying after one punch. Yeah, literally are actually dying. So he dragged her by her hair, heaved her over the fence, because there was a fence right in front of the pig pen, dragged her into the pig pen where he attempted to brutally rape her amongst the screaming pigs that were around uh, while she was gasping for air and bleeding from the mouth. Just awful, awful. The sound of the screaming pigs in the pig pen alerted the other patrons inside the bar, so Richard bolted before carrying out the assault. Of course... Not surprising who did it. Mary died just minutes after she was found. Kidney rupture. Yeah. Yeah. Liver. Liver, I'm sorry. Now, the patrons at the bar were able to kind of piece together for police that Richard had been seen upset... And that she he had gone, he had, yeah, he had gone out back and then was soon followed by Mary. So and then they hear screaming from the pigs. Yeah. He's gone and she's dead. So they put two and two together. So he was possibly the last person seen with her. It wasn't long before police were on Richard's tail. Authorities learned that Richard was staying at the Christie Hotel. So the next morning they went to find him, only to learn that he had checked out. No. Little did they know Richard had already hopped a freight train back to Chicago, once again fleeing police. On the road again. So Richard's back in Chicago. 
and he doesn't have any money and nowhere to go aside from his sister's house, Which Martha. Which he can't really go to because his, yeah. his brother-in-law is like, fuck you, dude. Well, remember, Gene hates him, yeah. So Gene was not too thrilled with Richard that he was back. <laughs> so he got Gene got to work trying to find Richard a job so he can get him the hell out of it. Out of his house. Yeah, do whatever you yeah. can. Just him out, get him out. Get rid of him, whatever. So, Gene brought Richard to get uh, signed on by the Coast Guard, where he was then able to start looking for berths at the National Maritime Union hiring hall. So, he was going to be a seaman on a ship. I'm not going to giggle at seaman today. I'm a mature... You can say seaman today. 39-year-old adult. 38-year-old <laughs> adult. Seaman. I'll be 39 in two months. He was a sea man. Well, a man of the sea. Richard immediately found a berth on a ship called the Clarence B. Randall, and he was sent out to sea as a seaman. As a seaman. <laughs> With all the other seamen. <laughs> Doing seaman shit. Doing the seaman shit. <laughs> They're doing seaman shit. Richard immediately found a berth on a ship called the Clarence B. Randall, and they were sent out to sea. The work was hard, but he did pretty well under a new, very regimented schedule until about a week into his departure when Richard failed to show up for his regularly scheduled shift. Was he sleeping? No, he was not. Well, kind of, actually. So the captain sent some men to Richard's bunk to check on him, and they found that Richard was unconscious, laying in the fetal position on his floor with a super high fever. So, yeah, kind of sleeping. His appendix had swollen up to the size of a grapefruit and was ready to rupture. Never a fun time. So Richard had to be helicoptered into the nearest hospital, which happened to be St. Joseph's Hospital in Hancock, Michigan. After... Surgery, he woke up in his hospital bed to find the most beautiful lady he claimed to have ever seen in his life, a nurse named uh, Judy, and I'm really going to try hard to pronounce her last name. No. Lakanami, I think it, I think is what her last name is. Lakanami? Mm-hmm. She was 28 and a divorcee, and she spent the next several days showing Richard something he had not ever had before, which is genuine friendship and kindness. kindness. She was nice to him without ever expecting anything in return. She was a nurse. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, she went above and beyond. She really I, I know, did I know, care. I'm just yeah, saying, but there's a lot of nurses out there that are, that are like that. I'm saying, so she was just being a nurse. She was being a good person too. Yeah. Of course, Richard was absolutely enamored with her, but. She was just the kind of per- she was a kind person, and I think she did somehow grow to view Richard as a friend because to her he was just kind of a shy, lost soul. Well, yeah, you know? it makes sense, right? She's she's doing this stuff. She's going. Maybe she's just one of those people that tries to make people feel good, right? Mm-hmm. And this guy, you can he's probably he's, from the outside looking in. If you didn't know all his shit, you would just look at him and be like, "This dude needs a friend." He like, needs a friend. He's lost. Poor guy. He's yeah. just lonely. So you probably try a little harder. And then maybe you do make a friendship with him because he's nice in that time period. You know what I mean? So it's not far-fetched. Richard was so infatuated with her that he would make a special trip to see Judy once again. After the pair said their goodbyes in the hospital, he was flown back out to his ship to finish his birth. Well, (laughs) 
He was soon kicked off that ship when he started a drunken fight with his senior officer. Yeah, that's not good. I can understand that. It may or may may not have happened in my life. I don't know. Of course it did. When (laughs) When he reached land, he immediately bought a train ticket to Michigan where he met up back up with Judy. And the pair had coffee together, and she very kindly handed Richard $80 out of her savings account to assist him in whatever he decided to do next. So she was just a nice person. So he took the money and then boarded a bus back to Chicago. Why did he decide not to kill her or pursue this? I think Judy challenged his two very black and white ideals of what women are. See, to him, and we're going to go back to this later on. And uh, But to him, women are either like pure angels or whores. And she was kind of neither, you know? She was definitely not pure because she had been married. She, she was, was divorced. divorced right? But she was she also wasn't a whore. Like she was just a nice person. I think that her genuine kindness may have saved her from an otherwise dark fate in crossing paths with Richard, you know? Yeah, her genuine kindness probably just she, I don't know, but there's nothing bad about her. She was just my nice speculation. to him the whole time, right? Yeah. So that anger is not going to be represented towards her because she was just nice to him. However, if you think Richard has turned over a new leaf and has changed his ways, you'd be sorely mistaken. Yeah, I don't know why you even preface it with that. Like, we know this dude didn't change and become a nice dude all of a sudden. When we come back, we're going to see just how depraved one individual can truly be. In great detail, thanks to a brave survivor. So be right back after this quick ad break. And we are back from our one commercial that we have. <laughs> one day we're going to have two. <laughs> hey, I mean, dream big, right? So Richard is back in Chicago with the money that he was given from this unicorn of a woman. Right? The $80, yeah. Well, back then, that's a lot of money. Oh, I, I know. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying. He was just so, like, genuinely confused by this woman's kindness that he decided he wasn't going to drink away all of this money for once. So You know what? She was so kind. I'm going to use some of this money for a good thing. <laughs> I'm going to buy drugs with it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Not going to drink it away. I'm just going to buy crack. <laughs> so he went right to the Maritime Union to try to get another berth on another ship. To make some honest money. He was immediately granted birth on the SS Flying Spray cargo ship bound for... Who names this shit? The Flying Spray. Sounds like a really bad Pokemon. SS Flying Spray (laughs) cargo ship bound for Vietnam. However... Yeah, that's why he got it because it's the 60s and no one wanted to go on a ship to Nam. However, when he arrived at the ship to board... His position had already been been taken by um, a seaman with more seniority than him. Okay. So that's kind of how it was. It was kind of like first come, first serve, I guess. Yeah, I don't and then, know. then if they're going to get a couple people, they're going to take the most experienced one, depending on the ship and the sailing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And he was pissed. Here he is trying to not be a shitbag human, and some douche comes in and takes his job. Well, fuck it, I'm going to go drink. 
Yep. So Richard went. Fuck me, dude. <laughs> so Richard went to a bar called Pauline's in the South Deering area of Chicago, and got himself a room. And he drank every single cent of money he had in his pocket. And back then, what in the early sixties? Well, what mid sixties? Mid sixties, probably. Yeah. Eighty dollars. So he got a room. It's a really crappy room. It's probably like a boarding house to drink that much. That's a lot of booze. The next morning, he woke up with a splitting headache. That's a lot of boozy drink. And what? had no money and no place to go. After coaxing twenty five dollars out of his sister Martha, he got himself a room at the Shipyard Inn on Chicago's East Side. And after he got settled in, he went to a bar and he drank the night away before being approached by a middle-aged sex worker named Ella May Hopper. Oh, okay. I love that name. That's like a movie star name. Ella May Hopper. Apparently, or a hooker. Sex worker. Lady of the night. The two chatted a while before Ella agreed to leave with Richard and return to his room at the shipyard inn. Well, once inside, Richard pulled his knife on Ella and demanded that she hand over all of her money. She's trying to pull a trick and he's just robbing her ass. But you know what? This ain't Ella's first rodeo. Oh, no, no, no. <sighs> she probably got a gun. Well, uh, yeah. Well, Ella, far from a newbie, pulled out a twenty-two caliber revolver from her purse, held it at Richard, like leveled it at Richard's head. Thank you, Coco. I know. Richard's a douche. Leveled it at Richard's head and was like, no, bitch. That was a direct quote, by the way. That's no what bitch. Ella said. Yeah. Ella was like, no, bitch. Listen, rookie, you brought a fucking knife. Exactly. <laughs> you don't bring a knife to a gunfight, you dumbass. But unfortunately, as hardy as Ella was, she was just no match for an enraged Richard. He promptly smacked the gun out of her hand. He beat her. He raped her. And he robbed her of her gun and all of the cash in her purse before throwing her out on the street. After the, yeah, after the assault and robbery with a little cash in his pocket, Richard decided to splurge a little on himself. A little self-care, if you will. Some more booze? He went out and bought himself some heroin and a syringe. Oh, bought some hair on. Okay. Yeah, he had never done that before. That's newer. So uh, he did heroin for the very first time at about, this is the night of the murders, by the way. Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, so he did heroin for the very first time at about 10 p.m. He had someone show him how to do it, right? I was about to ask how the fuck did he know how to do it. Yeah, on the evening of July 13th, 1966. And I'm not familiar with heroin or the side effects. I've never done it. But all of the rage and confusion that swirled around inside of Richard, coupled with the drug, that gave Richard, for lack of the better word, uh, courage to just commit the unthinkable, I think. So with a clear plan in his head and a spring in his step, Richard Speck walked half a mile across town to 2319 East 100th Street, a townhouse serving as a dormitory for young nursing students. Just a short time before, he had spotted a young nursing student dressed in all white in downtown Chicago. He had followed her home because she had reminded him so much of his beloved nurse, Judy. Yeah, his nurse friend. Yes. To his surprise, 
The house where she lived was the home of eight other gorgeous young women. And now, thanks to the heroine, Richard had the audacity to act out his deepest, darkest desires and unleash years of pent-up anger and resentment towards women while exhibiting control that he had never before had in his life prior. Okay. Okay. So the following is an eyewitness account of what happened that horrific night in that townhouse. I'm also coupling it with a little bit of what forensic evidence we have to offer. And parental discretion is, is advised. Very much so. And now, yeah, if you, get, if you get shook by the gruesome and the nasty, I'm pretty sure this is about Courtney's story where it gets to that point. So we're we're about there. Of course, like Patrick just said, trigger warning. <laughs> This is going to get really gnarly. But since there was a survivor, I am i don't want to shy away from sharing her experience since she was so Hell incredibly, no. incredibly brave to share it herself. Brave enough to actually come out with a story? Fuck that. We're going to share it. Yeah. So I'm going to share it. I don't want to shy away from it because she didn't. So. Oh, hell no. If, she can't, if she's not shying away from it and she was the reason for all this coming out, then you got to do her credit. Richard walked up to the townhouse door, knocked hard four times, and Corazon Amarau, a 23-year-old exchange nurse from the Philippines, uh, known to her friends as Cora, answered the door in her nightgown. As soon as she opened the door, her eyes focused in on the tall, skinny man with the pockmarked face holding a gun to her head. Right off the bat, Richard stepped inside, pushing Cora into the hallway, closing the door behind him. He smiled at her, still holding the gun to her head, and asked in his charming southern draw, where are your companions? This hallway they were in, by the way, was lined with doors, and behind each door was a bedroom. Yeah, kind of like a hotel or, yes. a, or a regular dorm. Very, or an apartment complex or something. Or comp- or yeah, apartment. It was a town. Yeah, it was a house. It was converted. converted or, or, or an old apartment, like a yeah, small like complex a small or something. So it's inevitable that soon after Richard gained entry, another student nurse would have woken up. You Who know? the fuck is here? Yeah. Well, that student nurse, the one that woke up was Merlita Gargulu, Gargulo, sorry, an exchange student from the Philippines burst into her bedroom, into the hallway, out of her bedroom, into the hallway, wondering what's going on. With a wave of his gun, Richard herded both Merlita and Cora through a door where three more student nurses lay sleeping and another young, unsuspecting student was walking out of the bathroom about to get back in bed. Richard figured that there were eight nurses total he had six of them together right now, so he was missing two. He demanded the girls tell him where their remaining friends were, but they were all too terrified to even respond, of course. Surprising. Some of them had just woke. <laughs> well, thank God he can't because mm-hmm. as we, yeah. Well, three of them had just woke up, like you said. Um, Richard then made the girls sit in a semicircle on the floor, assuring them the whole time, he. that's one thing, guys, I can't drill hard enough that he kept assuring them that no one was going to get hurt. And he's very calm and charming. He kept assuring that he had no intention of hurting anyone. He just wanted some money for, quote, an upcoming trip to New Orleans. And then he would leave them be. I know, very random. New Orleans in his life, okay. 
two of the girls, Nina jo- Nina Joe Schmall and Pat Matisek, instantly spoke up and offered Richard money and was like, "Hey, can I go get my purse? I have money. I Let got us you. go. Let yeah, me get absolutely. Money. Get the fuck out of here." Well, everyone's like, "Yeah, can we go get our purses?" And he responded one at a time. And if I think you're fooling around, I've got all your friends here waiting to pay for it. So he let him go one at a time. So one by one, the girls filed out of the room, got their purses, set back in the their assigned seat in the semicircle. They each gave Richard all the cash they had on them, and he collected it, kind of like taking up a church offering. Yeah. Right after that, the front door of the townhouse flew open and in stumbled an intoxicated and very unsuspecting Gloria Davy. She had been out on a date with her boyfriend, and she was just returning from a fun night of drinking, as we do, right, when we're in college. (laughs) Needless to say, she didn't even know what to think when Richard charged at her, grabbed her, and threw her onto the bedroom floor along with her fellow housemates. He then kicked the bedroom door shut behind him, stripped off a sheet from the bed, and drew out a knife. The girls sat and watched as Richard sliced the sheets into strips with his knife while telling them, I can't have you all running off and getting the police the minute I leave, so I'm just going to tie you up. Don't worry, I'm going to be gentle with y'all. And one by one, he took hold of each girl, bound their legs together. And once all of their legs were bound together, then he went back around and bound all of their wrists together. The last one to be tied up completely was Pamela. And for good reason, he had plans for her. Richard said before taking Pamela to the side bedroom, I just want to talk to her. That's all. I just want to talk to her. So he's constantly reassuring the other girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pamela whimpered as Richard dragged her off and threw her onto an empty bed in another room so she can no longer be seen. Before Richard could do anything to poor Pamela, the front door of the townhouse opened and in walked um, Mary Ann Jordan and Susan Ferris, two more student nurses. The two young women were just coming off of their night shift at the hospital. They were both so exhausted, and they almost made it to their bedroom near the back of the corridor before they saw the bedroom door next to theirs was cracked. And they peeped through the opening, and they were shocked to see a strange man with a knife looming over their friend Pamela, who was bound at the wrist and ankles and clearly terrified. The pair both screamed and went darting through the house, like running for their lives. Yeah, exactly. And they could hear some, they can hear like in the distance some soft speaking coming from another bedroom. So that's where they went. Duh. That's where they're going to go. Well, when they walked through the door, they saw the rest of their roommates and fellow student nurses all bound up and sitting on the floor in a circle. Before they could even react, Richard came up behind them and hauled both Suzanne and Marianne into another bedroom where they actually, like, fought him, really tried their best to fight him. Richard first stabbed Marianne in the stomach several times before dropping the knife, throwing Suzanne on the bed, and then strangling her to death. Once he was satisfied that both of the girls were dead, he grabbed the knife, wiped it down on his victim's clothing, 
closed the door behind him, and went back to the bathroom to wash up. We're going to see that he does that. It's almost like a ritual. Well, he's almost, it's almost like he's trying to maintain that. Organization. Organization and also maintain that, that level of like control. reassurance. Yeah, but definitely reassurance. And that's control, right? Like yeah. whether he's reassuring them just to ease their tensions or he's doing it as a control technique or tactic, right? He's So they don't panic or whatever. He didn't want the other girls to know that he had just murdered their friends. Nope. Um, I think they knew, though, because Cora could hear a lot of this. You're here struggling um, and then quiet mm-hmm. and never hear anything else. You're gonna- he wanted each of them to be surprised when it was their turn. It's just sick and twisted. It makes no sense, but this is what happened. Richard went into the bedroom where Pamela was still bound on the bed alone. And she was still laying there, too terrified to move. Richard crawled on top of her, drew his knife, and stabbed her several times in the chest. After she was dead, he took one of her white knee-high socks. I spent a lot of time on this, and I can't figure it out. So she was dead, and then he took one of her socks and tied it around her throat. Why? Maybe he just liked, liked the look of it? I don't know. Maybe he liked the look it's of strange. it. strange. Maybe it was in case she wasn't dead, she couldn't scream. I don't, I don't know. Who it's knows? It's really odd. He then closed the bedroom door behind him. And made another trip to the bathroom, right? Protocol. Clean himself off before going to select his next victim. When he walked into the bedroom, he locked eyes with Nina Jo Schmall. Uh, She would be the next, he decided. Richard untied Nina's legs so that she could get up and walk. He pulled Nina to her feet by her hair and led her out of the room into a remaining empty bedroom. And guys, for some reason, that well, not for some reason, this one really got to me. I, I, they're all horrible, unimaginable deaths, but this one gave me nightmares. So, trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, you can skip ahead like 30 seconds if you don't want to hear this one. He then laid a terrified and shaking Nina down on the bed where he proceeded to try to smother her with a pillow. However... Nina had a lot of fight in her, and she was fighting back, and the bed had some spring to it. Okay. So he wasn't getting a lot of, he wasn't having a lot of luck. So after a few minutes of trying to smother her, Richard decided he'd have to find another way to kill her. So he tossed the pillow aside. He drew his knife and stabbed Nina in the neck. I hate to say that he completely botched this, but I think he did it on purpose. And... This this actually could have been like a pretty quick and painless death for Nina, but it wasn't. He had, see, Richard had missed all of Nina's like major arteries when he stabbed her neck. And instead of trying, like instantly killing her, the puncture caused her to gargle, like gurgle and slowly choke on her own blood. Struggling to breathe, she still tried with everything she had to fight and survive. And she heaved herself off the bed and was taking swings at him, and he was just letting her, never just letting her die, and stood there and watched her die. And that's just tough to me. I don't yeah, know. I mean, if he stabbed her in the neck, didn't get either of the arteries on either side, but puncture you know, the, the trachea and all that stuff, she's just going to basically, like you said, just bleed in her own throat and choke on it. It's, it's just so... It's, that's rough, because you're like you said, if he rough. Hit, you know, the femoral or the carotid or one of those, she's out in like minutes. He took the time 
to stand there, dodge her efforts, you know. It's like one of those things you see in a horror movie where like, it a, is. Where like it's Jason like a horror stabs movie. someone and then they're trying to fight Jason but they're dying and he's just backing up and looking at him. This took I don't I don't think y'all understand. Like it take it's not like a well, movie. It's like five to ten minutes. It yeah, it it takes a to whereas, stand there and watch this woman hit, suffer. You know, one of the two arteries in the neck, it would have been a minute. Yeah. Finally she eventually drowned in her own blood and Richard Satisfied she was gone, left the room. Again, went and cleaned up in the bathroom and returned to the bedroom where all the girls were sadly waiting to see who would be next. next. Richard selected a foreign exchange student, uh, Valentina Passion, to be his next victim. He didn't even bother to untie Valentina's legs, seeing as she weighed less than 100 pounds. She was tiny. He just picked her up and hauled her. Uh, out of the room, slamming the door behind them. But it was right after Valentina was taken away by Richard that Cora, the exchange student nurse who we met initially, she answered the door when Richard knocked, right? She was like, okay, I'm not just going to sit here and wait for my turn to die. She's not stupid. She knew that this man was killing her friend. She could hear, you know, struggle, like you said, struggle and then silence and then the bathroom. Yeah, like it's and, a pattern. She's establishing a pattern. And it is a pattern. And, it, and then she knows that he's killing him because he's not raping him, right? He's not taking him one at a not time. Not yet. Yeah. What I'm saying is he's mm-hmm. not taking him one at a time repeatedly over like a couple minutes at a time. Like that he's not, he's obviously. It's quick, whatever he's do doing. That. He's not yeah. able to rape that many. So he's obviously killing him or doing something awful to him. Well, as a nurse, she had dealt oh, with awful. as a nurse, she had dealt with plenty of drug addicts in her time at the hospital, and she recognized that Richard was indeed on drugs. Uh, all the signs were there. His pupils were blown out, his skin was pallid, and he was sweating profusely. The way he was speaking was it was very obvious to her that he was definitely on drugs. So she figured that if his perceptions were altered from the drugs, she may be able to survive this. And if she could just simply not be visible, like that's all it's going to take. Don't be visible to him. The next time he walked into the room to select a victim, he might just look her over. You know, might not remember. Yeah. But he, yeah, yeah, he might, he might not remember that there's five in there now or four. He might just see what he sees and be like, that's all that's left. Yeah, and he can't do math because he's Richard He's Speck. already stupid. Yeah. <laughs> she realizes that he's high on, you know, something, heroin, coke. So Cora managed to wriggle herself all the way past, like, the bed frame of the bunk bed. And it was up against a wall. She, she did pause for a moment when she heard her friend Valentina cry out in pain from another bedroom but then she continued to scoot herself all the way between like the bed and the wall like underneath the mattress between the bed and the wall uh-huh. so she would be completely like invisible yeah, yeah. unless you're moving the entire bed you're not and plus it. she's tiny too she listened quietly as Richard returned to the bedroom to select his next victim Merlita which was unfortunately one of her close, close friends, also from the Philippines. She would be next. Cora silently wedged herself like even further. And um, she could hear from the other room, Merlita scream out, masakit. And that's a Filipino word or Filipino phrase that means it hurts. After a few more minutes passed, 
Richard came back for another victim, and he saw that there were two women left, Pat Matisek and Gloria Davy. Richard chose Pat to be his next victim. Now, he couldn't lead Pat to a bedroom like he did his previous victims because there were no more bedrooms left. He had used them all. Used them. So he brought her to the bathroom. Once in the bathroom, Richard punched Pat in the stomach as hard as he could, instantly rupturing her liver. Sound familiar? Yep. That's kind of, I mean, that's just crazy to me. Like, I I don't doubt it, but, you know, I've watched fights and UFCs and all these things for all these years. Like, I've never heard of someone being able to, in two times, trying to rupture a liver by punching someone. Yep. That's just insane. Yep. I know. I, I've never heard that either. That, this is the first time I've heard that one. Once he was satisfied that Pat was dead, he returned to his final victim, Gloria Davy. He had something planned for her. See, in Richard's twisted mind, Gloria, see, remember she was the one that had come in drunk from an outing with her boyfriend? She was the bad one. Yeah. She, was, she fit under his little buckets of women. Yeah, so... She was, in his twisted mind, she was the unclean and not pure one. So Richard, out of of places really to take his victims, just right there, stripped Gloria of her clothing. And, well, he cut open her nightgown and brutally stripped her of her clothing. And he raped her there on the floor of the bedroom. And from underneath the bed frame, a terrified Cora watched this whole thing unfold helplessly as she saw her friend and housemate be brutalized by this monster. And she's just trying to make sure that he doesn't see her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When he was done, he took hold of Gloria's ankle bindings and dragged her through the hallway into the living room where he draped her nude body over one of the seats. He then took a piece of rip sheet out and wrapped it around Gloria's neck, winding it around so tightly that after he let go, the cloth was still embedded in her skin. It was his one final act of brutal over- overkill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah his, that was rough. It is rough. And it's, it's you know, that thing with the neck, is, it's crazy. There's so many, like, to, basically in order to kill someone with that kind of tech, that, that kind of mm-hmm. death, like that strangling with a piece, other than like a rope, even a rope, it still it still digs into the neck like so mm. deep that it becomes like fused into the skin. Almost. I just don't understand how even someone I hated. I don't understand how one human could do that to another human. You know what I mean? It's just like yes, I know what you mean. No, I mean it's it's because it's anger, it's passion, right? That's why they call it a crime of passion. Ninety nine percent of the or crime rage. He was obviously picturing her to be someone else. Yeah, but. It, it is rage, and it's what, but rage falls into that passion category. We're talking yeah. crimes, and most crimes that are considered crimes of passion are not like I shot you. Mm-hmm. Like, they're brutal as fuck because it's like an eruption of the emotions. That's why it's the crime of passion, right? But it's almost like it erupts in this violent atomic bomb of just violence. Crescendo. Yeah, it's it's just because it's not like one stab. It's like they'll be like they were. Stabbed 57 times and blood coated the walls like, mm-hmm. because they were stabbed so much because the anger, you just, there's no restraint. There's mm-hmm. no control. 5 a.m. the following morning, a student nurse at a neighboring townhouse named Judy Dykton woke up to her alarm going off. She got up, 
she put a load of laundry on and opened her window to get some air in because it's July, so it's warm. It's fucking hot, dude. <laughs> and she turned the fan on. Judy had gotten up early to study for her exams that day. Just as she cracked open her book at her desk, she heard what sounded like an animal crying outside her window, like right outside her window. So she looked outside. She was like, what's going on? And she saw Cora, remember our Cora? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Across the road on the ledge of her townhouse. She was crying and seemingly trying to like, the best I can describe is like whisper yell. Hey. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a good way to do it. Okay, so you know what I mean? It's like a whisper yell. But she was trying to call out for help without being too loud because she was terrified that Richard was still in the house. Obviously. I mean, he's obviously. All her friends, and she has room. no, yeah, she has no idea where he is. Because she's been hiding the whole time. So finally, Cora's like, okay, this isn't working. So she's like, they're all dead. Like she just yelled out, they're all dead. And, um, Judy was like, oh, my God. Like, so <laughs> Yeah. So she went and she, like, got up all of her housemates. She woke everybody up because it's 5 a.m. Like, it's still dark. Right. And they're all nursing students. So yeah. She, obviously, probably know Cora and these other girls. And they're like, what the Cora's fuck is all she business. doing? Yeah. Um, so she went and woke up all of her housemates. And they all headed over to Cora's townhouse, like, as a group. And before they tried to enter through the door... Cora, she had gotten down and she screamed. She jumped in front of him and was like, no, don't go in. He might still be in there. Like, don't go in there. And she kept saying, everyone's dead. Everyone's dead. So Judy went to go and get the resident house mother. Um, Mrs. Bassone was her name. I want to get the resident motherfucking sheriff. <laughs> well, Mrs. Bassone was the house mother and she's like a no nonsense bitch. She has to deal with like pranks and shit. So she wakes up and she's like, okay, what's going on? So <laughs> Mrs. Bassone walked in, into Cora's townhouse and she went room to room and she witnessed uh, the aftermath of the most gruesome crime scene like ever of the century. I would, I would think that that's like so definitely up there. up there. Every single one of her girls were dead. Mrs. Bassone first called the hospital, and I don't know why she did that, but she first called the hospital, I think it was in a panic, and told the receptionist there that her girls had all been killed. And like I said, I'm not sure why she didn't call the police and why she did this. Well, but because it's a nursing school, so they, they're probably yeah, just maybe, accustomed to call the hospital. Yeah. Like that's probably who they call for. She was in shock as well. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They, that's, they probably, she probably calls the hospital for any issues because they're like really in charge of these girls. Yeah. For whatever it is. So she probably was just like, I don't know who the fuck to call right now. But luckily one of the student nurses waiting outside with Cora from the other townhouse, um, she had the sound mind to flag down a passing by police car. Uh, help. <laughs> the, this poor policeman, it was a little a rookie officer named Daniel Kelly he pulled over and he got out and he went inside to investigate. He was a young guy. He's like, okay, what the fuck are y'all talking about? Get this, Pat. This is insane. When Officer Kelly walked in through the townhouse's front door, first the first person he saw was the strangled nude body of Gloria Davy. He damn near ran out of the house in shock because as it turns out, this guy, Officer Daniel Kelly, had been dating Gloria's sister. 
And he knew Gloria very well. So this was absolutely heart-wrenching for this poor kid. He was a kid cop, too. He was a rookie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was their age. But he pulled it together, and he did. He cleared the townhouse, making sure that the killer had left the building. And then he returned to his car and radioed for immediate assistance. His exact words on the radio, I was able to hear it. Um, He said, quote, They're all dead. Oh, God, give me the sergeant. I dated her sister. Oh, God, I've never seen anything like this. It's just awful. It's like a testament to how brutal this crime scene was, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's personal, too, for him. He's broken, you know? Okay. So, in fact, the house mother, just to further prove my point that how bad this was, the house mother, Mrs. Bassone, who was a— she was a hard She's bitch. A hard ass, yeah. You know, probably the best bitch in the world, but she was she, she was had still a bitch. Backs, yeah, she exactly. Was like, no nonsense, like, don't fuck around. But she would later say that she was only able to recognize one of the girls. The others were just so battered and beaten that they were unrecognizable. You know, and covered in blood. And- yeah, yeah. So it was it was bad. It was said that once homicide arrived, that they'd have to work. Like a little bit, and then step outside to be yeah, sick. Take a break. Be sick. But yeah, but yeah. even if you work a crime scene with one dead body as homicide, it's t- it's hours. Yeah. Right. So now you're talking about seven, eight people, mm-hmm. and in gr- gruesome murders. So yeah. like, you're going to need days to process that crime scene. So Cora had been taken to a hospital, and thankfully, the detective didn't want to put her through the additional trauma of identifying the bodies. <laughs> So officials from the girls' nursing school were brought in to identify the victims, which, yeah. thank God. Thank God, yeah. That'd be horrible, man. After Cora had stabilized enough to talk, she gave her statement and a really good description of Richard. Like I mean, She saw him. Up, unfortunately, she a saw lot. him. Yeah, like, a like lot. She disappeared right off the beginning of this, this event. She During was, the event, she was the first she person saw to meet yeah. him. So at that point, she probably wasn't even scared of him. She got to hear him a lot, everything. She talked to him, and then all of a sudden, it went to shit. Yeah, exactly. So it was enough for police to start canvassing the area to see if anyone had seen anyone matching. Anybody out of the, just even out of the ordinary. This description. Lo and behold, a gas station clerk remembered a man matching Cora's description. He even knew his first name, the man's first name, which was Richard. He asked, um, when asked if the clerk could tell investigators anything else about this guy, the clerk said that he had heard Richard grumbling about some sailing job. Like a sailing job. Yeah. So that, in turn, led police to the Maritime Hiring Hall, where they were able to find a file on a man matching Cora's description. He was well-known down at the union. <laughs> so he probably had a pretty well, big file. Off, well, he got kicked off. And he had the hospital yeah. record. Yeah. So it didn't take long for a hiring official to pull Richard's file. Police had, I police had ID'd their suspect within just hours of discovering this crime scene. So that's something we have never seen before. I think on the history of evil pudding, Within hours of oh, they, finding these bodies, the bo- yeah, no, 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 the ones we've covered, police, police were able to, yeah, go ahead and ID a suspect. I mean, that's crazy. So I like 
What I like to see is some good old-fashioned police work come through for us once in a while in these cases. You know, I love to because that's my background, right? So I, I hate seeing police, you know, and not all of them do it. Most of them are really good, but I hate seeing police just shit all over a case because of, like, ineptitude or just not paying attention, you right, know, whatever right. it is. Like, so it's good to see, like, proactive work and, like, four hours later, like, we got this mother. We know who it is at least. Right, right. So let's talk about Richard. What what's he, what, what where's Richard? <laughs> what's he doing? What's he up to? Okay, so of course he went to drink the day away after cleaning up and taking a quick nap back at the shipyard. Oh, I got some stress was, pulling out after that one. Jesus, hard day, Richard. <laughs> was, a, was it a rough day? Like brutally killing all those people was tiring, or what? But Richard. I mean, I was going to say he's not stupid, but he's very stupid. He's very but stupid. Richard was keenly, he was keenly aware that police would soon be closing in on him for committing a crime of this magnitude. Well, he, you know? he knows that that's not going to stay hidden forever. So he packed up his stuff, checked out of the shipyard end, uh, went and bought a big bottle of wine, and got a room at the Star Hotel, the cheapest, grossest hotel in Chicago at that time. Once in the room, Richard chugged the whole bottle of wine, smashed the bottle on the hotel bed frame, and slashed both of his wrists with the broken glass all the way up to the elbow before passing out on the floor. Oh, I'm going to kill myself to deal with the crimes I did because I'm a big-ass fucking pussy. Thankfully, someone at the hotel either either saw this happen or heard it happen. I'm sure you hear a giant glass bottle of wine smashing. Yeah. But I think this is a pretty, like, trashy hotel. You probably hear that a lot, but anyways. But maybe, maybe depending on the time of day. Maybe the door was open. He didn't care. Who knows? We don't know. We weren't there. But thankfully, someone at the hotel either saw this happen or heard it happen, and police were called. Well, police were like, I'm always called to this hotel, so I'm going to send the ambulance. So they sent the ambulance. Every time we go, there's (laughs) this fucking bleeding. Yeah. So... Richard was found nearly bleeding out on the floor. They didn't know who he was, of course. So an ambulance came and rushed him to Cook County Hospital where, get this, Pat, ironically, his victims' bodies were being autopsied by a medical examiner at that very moment. Well, I guarantee you because everything in a city like that, everything in a certain zone Mm -hmm. goes to a certain hospital. So he's probably not too far away from where the murders were. You know what I mean? So it's all the same zoning. At the hospital, a junior doctor there who was charged with caring for Richard, shitty job, recognized his patient's born-to-raise-hell tattoo from all the news reports that were circulating. So he called police and alerted them that he had their guy before carting Richard off to surgery to repair a severed artery. Well, so to make sure he doesn't die. Yeah, he, yeah Richard severed an artery. The next part is almost like something out of a movie to me. And they did make a movie about but, this, yeah, by the way. Say, but 90% of this story is something out of a movie. It's but, crazy. But this, is, this part's really crazy to me. I don't know if I could see this happening today. I don't think it would. Okay, so obviously Cora was going to be the prosecution star witness, right? Obviously. She's the only witness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she was the only one who had actually seen Richard, like, actually in the act of committing these crimes. She was there. Well, they needed Cora to positively ID Richard, and they needed her to do it fast. So 
they wouldn't have to rely so heavily on the traumatized young woman in court. It was safer to have her ID him. So they wouldn't have to like lean on her so heavily, like right, when the trial happened. happened. Right. They don't, to, they don't have to testify. Exactly. Well, she still testified, well, I mean, but they wouldn't have to only rely on the victim's testimony. Yeah. So the state's attorney, William Martin, against his better judgment, brought Cora to the hospital where Richard was being held. Yeah, but I would almost do it because he's in surgery, right? You can look at him while he's Well, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Okay, so Martin had Cora dress in her nurse's uniform. Like, he had her look the part. Look like a nurse. Yeah. So he had her dress in the nurse's uniform and come down to the hospital, walk into Richard's room, and make sure that he was, in fact, her assailant. But Cora, she stayed in Richard's room for actually several minutes. And he was sedated. So he was out, like you said, yeah, Pat. Yeah. He was sedated and he She's was out. just looking at him like but wondering what the fuck. She was just staring at him. Like completely non-emotional. But then when she walked out into the hallway, she just fell to the floor sobbing. But she she said it's it's really him over and over and over again. But then she Bless probably stood heart. there in the moment and was just overcome with survivor's guilt. Yeah, yeah, all survivor's these things, guilt. And just looking is, at this person and in your mind, you're like, how the fuck did you just do that to everybody I care about? Like, yeah, what the fuck is wrong with you? Oh, God. And then you're probably like, I should fucking kill you right now. Like, she should have. <laughs> but no, I'm just telling you, like me, if I was in that situation and I'm looking at that person that just did that to everybody I care about, mm-hmm. I'm looking at them going, if I fucking kill you, what happens to me? Like, I'm, I'm, I should fucking kill you right here. So with Cora's positive idea of Richard, as well as her statement and all the forensic evidence there was against him, I think it's safe to say that the prosecution had a pretty sturdy case against Richard Speck. The case became even more solid when investigators found the blood-soaked clothing Richard had worn when he committed the massacre. Right. So to your point, it's not just based on her testimony. Now. Mm-hmm. Like there's just there's no way to get out of this. Yeah. This is before DNA. Like you're covered in blood. You have a knife. But I mean, there's just so much stuff that it's not one thing. It's just, there's no smoking gun. The whole thing is a fucking smoking gun at this point. So Richard was weaned off drugs long enough to be able to give his own statement. <laughs> However, he claimed to have remembered nothing about that night even though he had literally just been bragging about the multiple murders he had committed to his doctors. Yeah, he was bragging about them. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, he's dumb, but he's kind of smart sometimes, right? Because he went in there and he was high as shit. Like, they knew he was on drugs. So, like, he's probably, like, saying, I'm doing it, thinking, like, they're going to think I'm still on drugs or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. there's a little, like, calculation, calculation to that, but. He's just a dumbass at the same time. Richard was charged while still in the hospital. and He was promptly assigned a public defender by the name of William Getty. (laughs) That poor motherfucker. (laughs) Let's talk about people with the shittiest luck in the history of luck. Like, being a public defender, right? So you're pretty much either really knew it being a lawyer or you just didn't get, you know what I mean? So that's what public defenders I would say that he got the luck of the draw there with William Getty because... He, William was on his game. He was a smart feller. What I'm saying is, not necessarily like a public defender is not smart or a good lawyer, but they're usually like. 
I could never be a public defender. Yeah, maybe they just got out of college or maybe no one knows who they are in the town. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That doesn't mean they're bad lawyers. They're just like the people that are just stuck with nowhere to be. So, and then you're like, hey, I just got out of law school. Let me, I guess I'll take your job as a public defender. Who's my guy? Oh, Richard I don't know, how they, like, I don't the know how they sleep at night. Like, like going over like some of these because cases. Because they're not looking at the cases, at the details. I can tell you what they're, because I've wondered this. This is a good point. I've wanted this forever when I've testified against people and mm-hmm. like been in court cases. Mm-hmm. As a cop. I'm like, how are you? For f- new, newbies here. Yeah, as a, as pa- a cop pa- testifying. Pa- and I got these people like, you know, I've called, I've told this to Courtney and it's a great story. It was DUIs. I used to test, have to testify for DUIs every time until I, until you build your reputation and the court trusts you. Mm-hmm. But I have to sit there and it's not like, was this fucking person drunk as shit? It was like this. Like they would make me redo my field sobriety tests. Mm-hmm. They would make me like verbatim go through how I did it. And if I changed it at all, at all, they're yeah. like, see, you can't even fucking recreate what you did. Like, yeah. And you're supposed to be the professional, which you, is good. They need to hold you to a high standard. That's what they would shit on. Yeah. Not the fact that this dude drove into a building, pissed drunk and hit fucking eight people. It was yeah. more along the lines of, and that's an exaggeration. Uh, but yeah. No, I know. Literally drove into a building, like drove their car into a building. And I'm testifying at how I did the, no, field sobriety test. Whatever portion <laughs> yeah. of this field sobriety test is, that's what they'll question. So Richard's public defender, William Getty, he quickly got to work on two very crucial things. That's what I'm saying. He's going to find two things he can tear a hole in to create doubt. One, moving this high-profile upcoming trial to a different county where You're they not gonna get a fair trial. Yeah, where they would have a better chance of finding an impartial jury and. Number two, finding some psychologist who would declare Richard insane so that he could plead insanity. Complete insanity and go to a mental institute instead of being captured. We've seen this a million times. Well, I mean, that's what I would do too. If someone called, like, hey, I just got arrested for all this shit, I'd be like, "Uh, let's do two things. Let's get you the fuck out of where you're at because you're fucked. I'm convinced I could never be a public defender. (laughs) But that's what you would do. Yeah, no, if if I had to be. Yeah. Okay, so the judge allowed the trial to be moved several miles south to Peoria, Illinois. However, they were having some issues on the insanity front. And I'm only going to dive into this next part solely because I find the psychology and neurology of monsters like Speck so interesting. So just indulge me. According to the book... The Townhouse Massacre, which I'll link below. An exam, this is a quote. An examination revealed that Richard's brain was malformed due to his head injury. Yep. With the parts relating to emotional control being compromised and the line between, between rational and irrational thoughts blurred. Still, it wasn't enough to prove that he wasn't competent enough to stand trial. So in layman's terms... Richard was one messed up mother trucker, but he wasn't insane. Yeah. So he knew right from so wrong. So the difference is that he could distinguish right from wrong. Right. So that, that's what he wasn't insane because he could distinguish right from wrong. He just didn't have impulse control. Several psychologists examined Richard and most found him to be a sociopath. Again, interesting <laughs> and makes sense. It does but make sense. It doesn't make him insane. No. One of the psychologists, uh, Dr. Zaporin, did believe Richard was insane, but not really. Let me explain. He's fucked up. 
Okay, so he thought that Richard's extreme drug and alcohol addiction and withdrawal symptoms could have, in a way, caused a type of temporary insanity, maybe? Uh, delusional disorder, maybe? Yeah. Interestingly, he also claimed that Richard's psychology was dominated, dominated by the Madonna horror complex. And oh, this, this is what okay. I'm going to, this is where, okay. this is the hill I'm going to die on. Have you heard of this, Patrick? Uh, clearly, because okay. you just saw how I reacted to that. We briefly touched on this in the beginning of the episode, and I promised we'd circle back to it. So here it is. The Madonna horror complex is Basically, when men see women as either saintly Madonnas or debased prostitutes, and they can't maintain a sexual interest in a committed and loving relationship. And the Madonna you're referring yes. to is of the biblical sense, not of the pop culture sense. Yes, so we're not talking about yeah, Madonna being Madonna the with of the Jesus. comb boobs. We're talking about the mother of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So when we're referring to the Madonna of the whore, it's the mother of Jesus, which is like the absolute symbol of purity, didn't have sex but had the a baby that was, you know, that whole story so versus the whore. You know me. I went down a rabbit hole. Where did this come Which from? Which rabbit hole? This but is okay. crazy. Okay. The Madonna horror complex. Okay. Um, so Sigmund Freud actually wrote a bunch about this. Yeah. It's part of his, his Oedipus complex. Uh, he actually wrote about this complex. He said, and I quote, where such men love, they have no desire and where they desire, they cannot love. So this definitely stemmed from Richard's childhood, I would say, and definitely explains his struggle with the nurse named Judy, <laughs> who he held in such high regard. Yet he didn't know whether to categorize her and kind of like which... She was an enigma. She, was, she didn't to, fit. Where to place her in his mind. Because you have to be either a saint or a whore. Like one yeah, of she, the two. She wasn't either. She wasn't Madonna But or she was whore. neither. And he was like, this is weird. This is weird. I need to kill a bunch of nurses to come yeah, to the conclusion. Yeah. yeah. This will clearly make me understand. But I'm sorry for this little sidetrack here. I, 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 I really feel like I could do like a whole other episode on the psychological evaluations of like Richard. Richard <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure you can do a good Anyways. minute on it. That's, okay. So evil pudding candidate for sure. Long sto story short, there was, there just wasn't enough for Richard to plead insane, obviously. So his trial began on April 3rd, 1967. Cora did testify very brave, very bravely. Some I may bad add badass. In fact, it was later said that she testified with, uh, quote, almost impossible grace and described the events of that night in pristine detail. After her testimony, any chance that Richard and his defense team had at coming out on top just came crashing down. She did amazing. Well, even Good if they were, yeah, even, especially if they're going to do the insanity plea, mm -hmm. the fact that he kept telling and reassuring these girls takes yeah. the insanity off the thing because it's very calculated, very, like we said, controlling, very... You can't go, oh, he was insane. No, he was I can't. reassuring them. By the way, I really feel like I have not gotten even yet to the most like shocking part of this story. Well, let's get to it. I know. We'll get there. But, oh my God. Oh my God, guys. Like, researching this, it just killed me. Okay. Oh, I'm sure it did. And you and your rabbit holes, I'm sure it was even worse. So, on the 15th of April, 
After deliberating less than an hour, a jury found Richard Benjamin Speck guilty of all eight murders. They sentenced him to death. Great. Fine. That sentence was later converted, and Richard was resentenced to a minimum of 400 years. Basically. Effectively, what? well, effectively. Yeah, effectively what happened was the Supreme Court kind of reevaluated his trial whole case and found that in the jury selection for the trial, 200 jurors were potentially excluded because they held religious or moral views against capital punishment. So they had to issue a whole other sentence. And Yeah, because they be wanted the death penalty for this dude. <clears throat> it wasn't about guilty or not. It was, we want him to die. And the state was like, no, we're lenient. So 400 years, roughly yeah. eight life sentences. At minimum. So, well, well, whatever. No, He's no, not going anywhere. Remember, no we cares. talked about this. A life sentence does not mean until you die. Yeah. In most states, it's equivalent to 40 or 50 years. Well, he wasn't sentenced to life. He was sentenced 400 years minimum. Not maximum. Minimum. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Even If I sentenced, yeah. if I sentenced you for eight murders. So, I'm glad they didn't give him like sentences, eight life sentences. The minimum one of life is like 40 to 50. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not literally till you die. That's what it was. So, here's where shit gets crazy. <laughs> Richard was serving his time in uh, Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois. He decided to, um, he decided he wanted some pets. Oh. So, he, a pair of sparrows accidentally flew into his cell, and he was like, okay, you're my pets now. Weird, but whatevs. He... He even nursed one of the sparrows back to health when it broke its wing. Like, it broke its wing. Okay. And he was like a good bird dad or whatever. But eventually, the warden found out about Richard's birds and let him know that they weren't permitted under prison rules. Right. So Richard was like, okay. And he just, like, they had a big um, oscillating fan in the cafeteria. And he threw both the birds into the fan and just, like, blood spattered all over the wall. Like, if you can't, if I can't have these birds. Fuck them. Yeah. He put all of this effort into raising these birds and then just, like, massacred the birds. That's crazy. Okay, wait, no, it gets worse. (laughs) No, but the duality, like, again, the duality. Yeah, I know. His duality is just so weird. Like, Like, to your point, I spent all this time raising them. I can't have them? Fuck it. Like, this was not a weak thing that, like, he put time and effort into the. I don't know how long it was, but. That's what I'm saying. He put some. He's like, oh, I can't have them. He loved these sparrows. Yeah. He was like, I can't have them. So. I guess that's a control. Murder them. I don't don't know. Okay. So, during his time in prison, Richard didn't do any interviews. However, he did leave a message with one reporter for his victims' families. He said, and I quote, Quote, just tell them to keep up their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale, and I don't know what I'd do without it. So, no, he never showed any remorse for his crimes whatsoever. Did we expect him to actually do that? It gets worse. (laughs) And here's the part I just didn't see coming. I I almost could have predicted everything. Maybe not the birds. The birds you can't predict. Birds you can't predict. This I really couldn't predict. Okay. So Richard 
started prostituting himself for drugs and alcohol in prison. And he got himself a few clients that would, of course, smuggle in contraband. It's very normal in a prison setting. Is it? From your vast prison experience? From what I've read. It's a fairly common thing in prison. I didn't know if that was life experiences or what was going on here. I've never been in prison. (laughs) However, Richard decided that he was going to request some hormone injections be smuggled in. So that Richard could, in turn, grow. He really wanted boobs. He wanted boobs. What the fuck? I'm not done. Hold that surprise right there. <coughs> well, he did. He got his hormone injections. What, man boob? He wants boobs? He grew boobs. And a video was leaked to the public for all to see. I've seen it. To include the families of his victims saw this video. In this video, you can witness... Richard Speck dancing with full breasts in lingerie. This is like in the 90s. So he was older. Or late 80s, I would say. Yeah. Um, so he has full breasts, old man, in lingerie while snorting cocaine in prison and giving oral sex to other inmates. And that's not the worst part. He was also bragging to the camera about the murders. The guy behind the camera, whoever it was, obviously this camera was smuggled in, yeah. and an inmate had it, obviously. Um, he asked Speck about his time in prison, and Speck responded, quote, if they knew how much fun I was having, they turned me loose, in his southern accent. Then, when the cameraman asked Speck why he had killed and raped those women, Speck responded, and I quote, you ready for this? It just wasn't their night. What the fuck? So, <laughs> one psychologist, their perspective on this, I read somewhere and I can't remember where, so I can't like quote them, but they said something like, okay, he spent all of his life hating whores, so he became a whore. Yeah. And I really feel in my bones that that's what's happening here. Because, I mean, let's be honest. That's what's happening. I mean, right? Duh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Speck remained a fascinating character in in the psychology world. In fact, even after he died, no one claimed to claim his, bo- to, came to claim his body. <laughs> Who the fuck would claim that? So his brain was kept for evaluation because it's fascinating. Is it evil pudding? Unfortunately, someone would end up stealing his brain. Before it could be evaluated. Stole it from the lab. Fucking pudding. It wasn't me. Speck died on um, uh, September. December 5th, 1991. Exactly one day before his 50th birthday. Natural causes. And fucking. A far more peaceful death than the one that he afforded his victims. As always, in closing... I'd like to read off the names of the eight student nurses and one, I'm going to say civilian, because I hate that she's not named uh, Mary K. Pierce. Oh, yeah, 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 yes. yeah. The, one, so, the first one. Yeah, um, whose lives were senselessly, senselessly stolen. Each of them, I just know, would have had long, wonderful nursing careers, and it's our loss that they never got that opportunity. So first of all, Mary K. Pierce was his first murder victim. Then we have 
Pamela, the nurses were Pamela Lee Wilkening, age 20, Mary Ann Jordan, age 20, Suzanne Bridget Ferris, age 21, Nina Jo Schmall, 24. She was the oldest victim at 24. Yeah, 24. Yeah. Patricia or Pat Ann Matisek, age 22. Gloria Jean Davy, age 22. Valentina, Valentina P. Paisan, 23. Merlita Ornato Gargulo, 23. It's just shitty, man. Shitty dude. I hate that so much attention is given to that. I mean, I know it's shocking, so we have to mention it. Maybe that's why he did it, is to get the attention away from everything else. But the fact that where you're going is the attention's taken away from the victims. I hate that. That's why I wanted to end with the victims. But, yeah, I mean, fuck, man. (laughs) It's rough. (laughs) It's fucking rough because it's fucking, it's like you tell the whole story of the person and there was nothing remotely close to how the story ends. Mm Mm-hmm. In their life, it's like, oh, I had a bad day. And then all of a sudden, I murdered all these women. Well, you knew Well, you knew Richard Speck. Did you know all this about him? I didn't know half of this shit. I didn't know a lot about him. I knew the name. I couldn't have told you his murders and his crimes in the beginning of this episode. I couldn't remember. I knew he murdered yeah. a lot of people. I, You know what really bothered me is that no one ever, like, you could do a Google search of his victims, and you will not see Mary Kay Pierce, and I and I hate that because she wasn't bundled in that night. Like so I know, so it's but like, it's like he took. Um, but I would hate that if, like, if I was her mom, you know, that would break my heart. <laughs> no, it would. But it's like if you took the man. If you took um, Sharon Tate's murder, that whole group that was bundled on. Oh, I know the Folger. But he took one other person that they murdered like mm-hmm. two weeks before. They're not going to be remembered. Of like, course, part of the, well, the yeah. bigger. Yeah, no, and and that's just not fair. With but. a more shocking, newsworthy one, I should say. So, oi. <laughs> it was a good way to come back, maybe. Fuck. There was some coughing. I'm thinking about doing an episode of the prison series next, so maybe we'll do that. Maybe not. Don't hold me to it. But um, go subscribe to our pet- Patreon and... We'll put some tipsy. <laughs> Stared at you like, what did you just say? Tipsy Tuesdays out there, maybe first. No, we're happens. not even there yet. We're just trying to figure out what to put up, and then we might do another level. That we do do a t- Tipsy Tuesday, or we do do bonus episodes, or do 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 we do 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 bonus episodes. Do do. I'll let you know on Instagram. Okay, I'm just gonna say bye before it gets too weird. So we love you guys. Be good to each other. And um, we will see you on Patreon, Patreon, for the less cultured. And I, oh, you, oh, Lord. Okay. Anyway. Bye, guys. We love you.